Thanks for downloading the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the healthcare systems, regional and comparative perspectives in Britain and Ireland, 1850-1960 conference, a paper by Professor Virginia Crossman of Oxford Brookes University. Her paper was entitled Workhouse Medicine in Ireland, 1850-1910, Comparative and Regional Perspectives. In uh, 1895, the uh, British Medical Journal sent the trained nurse and experienced hospital administrator, Catherine Wood, to investigate the state of workhouse infirmaries in Ireland. Having visited 28 poor law unions across the country, she concluded that the vast majority of Irish workhouse infirmaries were not fit for purpose. They were generally too small, resulting in serious overcrowding. It was not uncommon, she found, for patients to be accommodated two to a bed. Buildings were often badly designed, common problems being damp walls, inadequate ventilation, drainage and sanitation, and insufficient and untrained staff. Sanitary appliances were the most elementary kind, she found, and many infirmaries had no provision for hot water. Wood's report recommended the employment of trained nurses in every workhouse infirmary, the employment of night nurses, the introduction of efficient sanitary systems, including the provision of adequate water, the provision of day rooms and, where possible, gardens. Now, Wood's report has often been cited as the evidence of the manifest failings of the infirmary system. But I think it's important to recognise that her investigation was part of a propaganda campaign by the Irish medical profession to improve, firstly, and most importantly, uh, the pay and conditions of poor law medical officers, and then secondarily, uh, or secondary, secondarily, um, work, the condition of workhouse infirmaries. So I think in some ways it's kind of skewed, there's a lot of sort of coverage of these reports, uh, and I think in some ways it's kind of skewed our perspective of what's going on. So what I want to do in this paper really is to uh, provide a kind of fresh look at the workhouse infirmary system. And what I really want to do is stress two things. Firstly, the importance of workhouse infirmaries within the hospital system and within the development of the hospital system, because I think they're often forgotten. Um, and secondly, the extent to which conditions within workhouse infirmaries actually change quite significantly over the course of the second half of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. Now, under the Irish Poor Relief Act of 1838, um, each uh, poor law union um, obviously had workhouse, and each workhouse had an infirmary under the control of a medical officer appointed by the local board of guardians. Um, during the uh, famine, of course, the poor law system was extended, um, and uh, a network of fever hospitals was introduced, uh, outdoor relief was introduced, the number of poor law unions was increased, uh, and uh, a dispensary system was introduced. Uh, the introduction of the dispensary system was followed in 1862, of course, by the opening up of workhouse infirmaries to non-destitute patients. Now, the poor law commissioners had originally hoped to create a comprehensive, publicly funded medical service, bringing county infirmaries as well as dispensaries within the poor law system. 
uh, leading figures within the Irish medical profession were strongly opposed to this plan since it would place them under the control of the poor law commissioners, which they didn't want, and they fought a well-organised and ultimately successful campaign to keep county infirmaries outside the poor law system. So what you ended up with was with, with this kind of dual uh, system where you had a system of uh, county infirmaries which was running uh, parallel to the uh, system of uh, workhouse infirmaries. Um, the creation of what were in effect general hospitals, that is the, the workhouse infirmaries when they're opened up to the non-destitute, uh, was certainly a second best solution as far as the poor law commissioners were concerned because it wasn't this nice comprehensive system which they'd hoped for. Uh, but they nevertheless took satisfa satisfaction in what had been achieved. There was, they noted in 1863, probably no country which possesses a more comprehensive and better organised system of intern and extern medical relief established and secured by law than Ireland. By the later part of the 1860s, Ireland possessed what Ronald Castle has described as a rationally administered nationwide system providing the Irish poor with the most comprehensive free medical care available in the British Isles. Uh, furthermore, Castle argues by forcing different categories of medical pr practitioners to cooperate with each other, the poor law played a central role in driving doctors towards a professional framework from which they could advance their case most successfully. For others, however, the weaknesses inherent in the poor law system, particularly with regard to hospital provision, outweigh the strengths. The development of Irish hospitals along what Larry Geary has described as twin or parallel lines, with workhouse infirmaries operating separately from county infirmaries, was, Geary suggests, a fundamental flaw in the system. Moreover, the stigma associated with poor law institutions is widely believed to have de deterred many people from actually seeking treatment within them. The majority of sick poor, it's been claimed, preferred to die at home rather than enter an institution. Um, the decades after 1860 saw major changes in the way the poor relief system operated. Uh, and the, one of the most uh, important changes is the... Uh, where are we going now? Uh, so what you get uh, in the uh, period from 18, the 1860s is uh, the, a shift in the balance between indoor and outdoor relief. Um, and when uh, we were hearing about the uh, Welsh system, um, we were hearing that it is uh, primarily an outdoor system. Uh, and the Irish system is often described as being primarily an indoor system. But in fact, um, from the later part of the 19th century, um, the Irish system is in fact an outdoor system. And you can see this very clearly. These are the average daily number of people in receipt of relief. Uh, and you can see that uh, after the period of the land war, uh, which is where you get the sort of the radical shift, um, after, from that period on, outdoor relief is always more significant than indoor relief. Um, and I think this is still a point that uh, I think people find it very difficult to kind of take on board, that actually from that period on, we're not talking about 
um, sort of the classic workhouse system where everybody's being forced into workhouses, but actually talking about a system where more people are actually being relieved outside workhouses than inside workhouses. So, and this, of course, has a very significant um, impact on the way that workhouses actually operate. So that's sort of one point to remember. Um, and then the other uh, interesting thing, of course, is that the, because, I mean, in a way, it's, it's sort of goes back to if you've got sort of um, declining and then kind of stabilising numbers actually in workhouses, that obviously affects um, the number of people uh, in workhouse hospitals as well. So if you actually look at the average daily number in hospital in workhouses, um, it actually becomes quite stable. So you know you ha it isn't that you've got huge numbers sort of going into workhouse hospitals. Uh, it's actually a relatively, relatively stable figure. Um, the other sort of, uh, sort of context I think is important is the fact that um, sick admissions um, actually are sort of on a declining trend um, in the sort of later part of the 19th century. Now, of course, this is very much related to the fact that you've got rising amounts of outdoor relief because, of course, again, in the same way that uh, you were saying that in Wales an awful lot of people are getting sort of help within their own homes, um, that is obviously clearly the case uh, in Ireland as well. And a lot of that is to do with one of the reasons why people, of course, could get outdoor relief is if they were sick. Um, so that a lot of um, people who perhaps would otherwise have had to come into workhouses to, to access medical care are getting medical care in their own um, homes. Um, so that the other, so that, so you've got uh, in the later part of the 19th century, as I say, you've got a kind of uh, relatively um, stable numbers within the actual hospitals, um, and you've got increasing numbers being um, treated, if you like, outside. So then, if we look at the different proportion of uh, sort of groups within workhouses, who actually is in workhouses. Um, these uh, show the different categories in the period from the 1870s up to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, you've got uh, the sort of the able-bodied at the bottom, um, and uh, the able-bodied women are declining as a group within workhouses. Able-bodied men, if anything, are up very slightly um, going up actually, but they're fairly small as a group. Uh, the, the groups that do increase, of course, are those in hospital and the infirm. Uh, the group that uh, drops down most significantly is children, uh, which is the uh, blue line. Uh, and that's pr primarily to do with um, boarding out, that um, boards of guardians are boarding out more children, so their numbers drop. It's also to do with the fact there are fewer children within workhouses anyway. So, I mean, that again, I think these are sort of important as kind of general context for what's, what sort of groups are being dealt with within the, the workhouse infirmaries. So, um, yes, so obviously, I mean, I think the, the outdoor relief thing is obviously, um, you, you have to sort of think about the way the outdoor and indoor relief sort of work together and how that impacts on, on the different categories. Um, you could, I mean, these are obviously national figures. You can see the same thing if you look actually at 
individual workhouses, you can see the same thing in relation to declining numbers of people actually being admitted sick. And I think that's that there are two elements to that. One of that is that the population is just getting healthier, I think, as well, over the later part of the period, uh, because you know, living standards are improving anyway. Um, and the other aspect is to do with, as I say, with outdoor relief as well. Um, and the other aspect is just the changing sort of nature of the workhouse population, which is increasingly, of course, again, given the, um, the increasing number being relieved outside, it means the people being left in the workhouses um, are increasingly the sick and the infirm. So that the whole function of the workhouse increasingly changes in the later part of the period. Now, of course, this is also something you find in other parts of the UK as well. This is not peculiar to Ireland. I mean, it's, it's, a sort of, it's the classic situation where you're talking about um, a, a population that's increasingly... Um, you're really talking more about care homes, if anything, uh, in, in the later part of the period. And, of course, this means that the function, as I say, of the, of the workhouse changes and the way that the authorities have to think about the workhouse changes. Um, so that in 1879, the local government board begins to direct uh, its inspectors to actually pay particular attention to the treatment of the elderly and the sick, since, as they said, much of the space which was formerly occupied by the able-bodied and healthy inmates has now been allocated to the aged and infirm and sick. Uh, and increasingly, the local government board is placing considerable emphasis on improving um, the condition of medical facilities because they recognise the importance of this. However, while anxious to Im promote improvements that would, as they said, tend to lengthen the lives of the aged poor and add to the comforts of the sick, at the same time, they said they were bound to keep the difficulties boards of guardians encounter in their financial administration constantly before us. In other words, what they're saying is that you have, we have to be realistic about what boards of guardians can actually achieve. Uh, there might be lots of things we would like them to do, but it may, just may not be practicable. And of course, they, you know, we are talking about um, a system that was funded from the rates, therefore there's not an infinite amount of money available. So that when they're always being sort of criticised for not doing things, um, the local government board points out that the actually just the financial condition of many unions precluded guardians from placing the workhouses and hospitals under their charge on the same level as regards comfort and equipment as the modern hospitals with which they have been to their disadvantage so frequently contrasted. And they're making that comment very much in the context of things like Wood's report that I started with. It's that kind of criticism that they're responding to and saying, okay, that you know, they might not be the workhouse infirmaries might not be the most modern, best equipped, um, but you have to recognise the context in which they're operating. Um, nevertheless, having said that, I think it's certainly true that the, the struggle to improve condition in workhouse infirmaries um, seems to have been even harder. The, way, the sort of process of improving things was even slower and more protracted uh, in Ireland than it was in England, and they're struggling against very similar conditions. They're struggling to get boards of guardians to appoint trained nurses. They're struggling just to uh, you know, have better 
as I said at the beginning, better things like better sanitary arrangements, all of that uh, is actually quite similar to sort of uh, developments in, in the rest of the UK. Uh, of course, one of the things that's slightly different in the Irish context is the presence of nuns uh, in many Irish workhouses from the 1860s uh, and increasingly from the 1880s. Um, they're using uh, nuns as nurses, um, which in one sense was seen as quite a positive development, um, but in a funny way it actually made it easier for boards of guardians to resist the pressure to appoint trained nurses because they say well, we don't need trained nurses because we've got nuns. Um, so that in some ways that's actually um, sort of uh, working against the, the efforts of things like the, uh, the medical profession to uh, introduce trained staff. Um, throughout the 1890s, the local government board um, makes quite a big effort to try and convince boards of guardians that they do need to appoint at least some trained staff. Uh, and what they do is they issue various circulars uh, pointing out uh, how important it is to have trained staff, how important uh, a circular issued in 1890 described uh, nursing as crucial to successful recovery. The highest skill and attention on the part of the medical officer may be neutralised by the ignorance and incapacity of the nurse charged with the duty of carrying out his instructions. Uh, when filling vacancies, therefore, boards of guardians should offer salaries that would, act, would actually encourage qualified people to apply. Uh, despite uh, these various circulars, an awful lot of boards of guardians do not actually take uh, any action. Um, so that in 1897, the local government board finally prohibits the appointment of any workhouse inmate as a nurse of the workhouse so that they were just not allowed to uh, do what they had been doing up to that point, which was, of course, using uh, pauper uh, attendants. Uh, paupers could still act as attendants, but only if approved by the medical officer and only under the supervision of a paid officer. Following the Local Government Act of 1898, the regulations regarding workhouse nurses were tightened further and the qualifications required of trained nurses clarified. A trained nurse was stated to mean anyone with a certificate of proficiency in nursing and two years of clinical or hospital experience, and a qualified nurse was defined as a person who had obtained a certificate of proficiency in nursing from a public general hospital, a workhouse infirmary, or a fever hospital, or a nursing institution. After 1898, the local government board refused to sanction the appointment of any untrained or uncertified person as a nurse or assistant nurse in a workhouse infirmary, even in a temporary capacity. Um, so they do gradually move to a system where there are more trained people. But of course, what they didn't do was make people sack existing uh, workhouse infirmary nurses who weren't trained. So you had this slightly odd situation um, uh, in 1913, you get the, the, you know, they produce various figures. Uh, in 1913, the total number of trained nurses employed in Irish workhouses had reached 268, together with 248 qualified nurses and 357 nursing sisters. But there were still 12 workhouses without a trained nurse, even though this was now um, accepted as necessary because they were still using people that had been appointed before the regulations um, changed. 
When assessing developments in workhouse medicine, I think there's a very important distinction to be drawn between workhouse hospitals in major urban unions, which treated large numbers of patients and were relatively well-staffed, not necessarily well-equipped, but relatively well-staffed, um, and those in rural unions, which could only accommodate very small numbers of patients and were often working under very primitive conditions. And I think we often forget that the workhouse infirmaries in the major cities um, did operate as major hospitals. Um, they accommodated really huge numbers of patients, particularly if you compare them to the voluntary hospitals. Um, I mean, Court Workhouse Infirmary, for example, could accommodate could accommodate over a 1,000 patients. I mean, that's far more than any of the um, voluntary hospitals which are, where you're talking about um, 100 patients, roughly. Uh, equally, Belfast uh, Infirmary uh, was, by, again, by far the largest hospital in the city. Again, it had 1,500 beds in 1909, which, again, is far more than um, any of the uh, voluntary hospitals. Uh, the uh, mater that Peter was talking about had a, uh, 200, 200 beds. Uh, the Royal Victoria had 234 in 1911. So you know, you're really talking about completely different kind of scale. Now, obviously, having said that, um, the, uh, the beds in the uh, workhouse, an awful lot of those are filled by uh, infirm. I mean, you're not talking about surgical, you know, 1,500 surgical cases or whatever. Um, nevertheless, I still think you know, there's an important um, element of scale to be taken into account. And uh, particularly, I think, in the uh, period after the uh, 1898 Local Government um, Act, um, there is a major improvement in a lot of workhouse infirmaries, partly because they can actually borrow money more easily um, after the 18th... That one of the uh, provisions of the Local Government Act is it enables local authorities to borrow money to improve hospital provision. Um, and this does seem to have made uh, quite a significant difference, so that some of the big workhouse infirmaries do become much more... Um, they, they're operating at a much higher level than they had done before, and Belfast is quite a good example of that. Um, by the sort of early 20th century, um, it's actually got a whole array of kind of specialist services. It's got a maternity department, it's got a lunatic department, it's got a children's hospital, it's got a fever hospital, and it had a separate sanatorium for consumptive cases. So you're actually talking about a hospital really working at quite a high level, I think. Um, and it's also a training, it's a training hospital, it's training nurses, and um, it's... Uh, um, got uh, you know medical students going in from Queens as well, uh, and of course that's a huge contrast to some of the little rural um, workhouse infirmaries, which are working at a completely, obviously, completely different level. So in, again, this is one of the points where the you know the poor law system you're talking about you know just huge variation. Um, Um, so probably I think the chief obstacles to improving standards of medical care in workhouse uh, infirmaries were firstly inertia part, on the part of boards of guardians. And again, this is the kind of classic situation where um, the authorities are constantly trying to prod boards of guardians into sort of taking action, either to, as I say, to appoint uh, trained staff to improve conditions. And of course, they're very reluctant to do it, mostly purely on financial grounds. They, don't, they just don't want to spend the money. 
Uh, and part of the problem with, with this was that, and again, this is this, uh, this situation in Ireland, the same as that in England, in the sense that there, there was no separate, they didn't have to make separate financial provision for the infirmary. It all came under the workhouse. Um, and this is something Keir Waddington's pointed out in relation to England, that because there is no kind of separate budget, it kind of um, it militates against actually making improvements. Um, and as I say, because the Local Government Act did actually make it easier for local authorities to borrow money for capital projects, um, this is one of the things that kind of, I think, encourages uh, change. And the other thing that the Local Government Act does is that um, under the financial regulations that accompanied the Act, central government undertook to meet half the cost of officers' salaries, so sort of workhouse officers, and that included um, medical officers, and it included, <coughs> it included the nurse, but she had to be a qualified nurse. So you've actually, after 1898, you've got a direct financial incentive for the guardians to appoint a qualified nurse because then they get half her salary paid by government. Um, and again, I think this is one of the things that does lead to significant change. Um, the other thing the uh, Local Government Act had made provision for was it said that uh, boards of guardians could turn the um, workhouse infirmary into a district hospital uh, if they wanted to, providing for the accommodation of paying patients. Um, and the idea was, again, it was to lessen the link between um, the hospital and pauperism, get away from this kind of stigma element of it. Now, I think very few boards actually make use of that provision. In fact, I can't really find out if any of them actually made use of that provision. And, of course, it, the whole um, political situation then makes it very difficult for anything to really happen under that. Um, but again, it's a sign of the way in which the poorer authorities wanted things to develop. They, they liked this idea of having a system of uh, sort of general district hospitals within the workhouse. I think that's how they saw things developing, which would be a, no, a kind of non-pauperising system. Uh, which, I mean, that doesn't actually happen, but it would, I mean, it, would be, it would have been very interesting if it had happened, in the sense you would then already, before the health service, you would have had a, a system um, uh, within the poor law system which, which would have begun to op uh, provide um, a kind of a genuine hospital service, free hospital service. Um, but one of the interesting things, I think, is the fact that even... Uh, under the changes that do take place, uh, certainly in terms of nursing, there does seem to be a real improvement. Uh, the 1905 Vice Regal Commission, uh, which again went round and sort of looked at conditions in uh, a lot of workhouses, that they also um, circulated a questionnaire to workhouse medical officers regarding their nursing arrangements and also conditions in hospital. So this is 1905, so this is 10 years after that report I referred to at the beginning, uh, which uh, Catherine Woods had produced, which had been so negative. Um, so the Vice-Regal Commission asks medical officers, well, what are conditions like in your, uh, in your infirmary? Uh, and while some of them are still saying it, they're actually pretty appalling, uh, Enniskillen, for example, the medical officer uh, said the conditions in the hospital were far from what I would consider satisfactory. It is a relic from the barbarous past. The guardians won't do anything, and that was kind of fairly typical. 
Um, however, a lot of other medical officers do refer to recent improvements. Uh, all the wards in Mount Bellew Workhouse, for example, were reported to be airy and well-lighted. Each has a lavatory erected within the last few years, and all have the latest sanitary accommodation. In Trim, the medical officer reported that the, the hospital was taken advantage of by large numbers of the poor of the union, and in my opinion, the prejudices which had existed in the, in the minds of the poor as to entering the workhouse infirmary do not prevail amongst them at present. Many respectable people avail themselves of the advantages which the hospital affords. Uh, and certainly out of, uh, if you go through all the responses, um, out of 159 workhouse medical officers, um, 125 reported that nursing arrangements were either satisfactory or better. Um, so that, I mean, that's an overwhelming um, uh, proportion, at least saying it's kind of satisfactory, uh, which is a very different, I think, sort of uh, impression from the one that uh, Woods was producing in 1895. So certainly in terms of sort of basic uh, nursing, things do seem to have improved. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why they wanted to uh, get away from, uh, to, to reduce the reliance on pauper nurses was to try and reduce the stigma attached to workhouse hospitals. And this was something that, um, you know, people were always kind of going on about. That's, you know, something that Paul Cullen, uh, Archbishop Cullen, is talking about in 1861. He says one of the reasons why the respectable don't want to go into workhouse hospitals is because of the uh, stigma um, so addressing that was, was one way of really um, trying, to, trying to change that sort of perception of the workhouse system. Um, and clearly, again, as I say, the provision um, by which boards of guardians could have converted the infirmary into a district hospital was, again, clearly trying to move down, down that route, um, which, as I say, doesn't, they don't uh, manage to sort of achieve everything they had wanted to in that respect. Nevertheless, by the end of the 19th century, uh, the permanent population of workhouses in Ireland uh, was very much, uh, I think, sort of the sick are a very important element of that, together with the elderly and infirm. And their care increasingly occupies the time and attention of boards of guardians and their officers. Um, so that the, the sort of the, the focus and the emphasis within uh, workhouses has very much changed. As with other aspects of poor law administration, there was considerable local variation in the nature and quality of medical services provided. In far too many unions, poor law guardians found it impossible to reconcile their desire to keep the rates low and adhere to the principle of less eligibility with the requirement to provide efficient and effective medical services. Um, but having said that, there were some unions in which medical officers were able to ensure that patients received effective treatment and were well cared for in reasonably comfortable surroundings. Um, I should emphasise the reasonably. Um, the workhouse doctor was described in 1895, again this comes from uh, Wood's report, as the Irish pauper's only friend. This I think is, is far too simplistic a judgement. Uh, it fails to acknowledge all the uh, kind of um, lobbying work that's going on through things like the Irish Medical Association, but also various philanthropic organisations that are trying to improve conditions within 
uh, workhouse hospitals and the Irish Workhouse Association, which is set up at the, uh, in the 1890s, is a good example of this. Um, but it also fails to acknowledge um, boards of guardians who were prepared to follow their medical officer's advice, or, I think crucially, the role of the poor law authorities. Whilst the latter were far too tolerant of outdated facilities and poor quality care, and sort of, um, as mentioned earlier, the fact they sort of say, oh, well, you know, there's really a, a limit to what we can do because of uh, financial problems, uh, which is, I think, a, to, to, to a great extent, was a, was a cop-out. Um, but having said that, the poor law authorities did consistently promote improvements uh, and their encouragement of, of more, profession, more professional nursing, I think, is a good example of that. And I think one of the very interesting things is the extent to which they do use the opportunity provided by the Local Government Act to push through a lot of the changes that they had been trying to introduce. So they see that as an opportunity to sort of introduce new regulations and also new financial provisions. Additional research is clearly needed before we can make a more comprehensive assessment of the actual practice of medicine within the workhouse. And that's one of the most difficult things to actually get at, is to really kind of get information on you know, how doctors actually operated within the workhouse. Um, but it would be a very interesting study. Uh, and the other thing I think is quite difficult to work out is really what kind of standards uh, were, uh, medical officers were actually expected to adhere to one thing, however, is clear. Only when we have a more complete understanding of how the poor law medical services operated will it be possible to evaluate the evolution of medical care in Ireland, because I think they're so important within medical care, um, or indeed the complex relationship between health professionals, patients, society and the state. Thank you.